Welcome to Entrepreneurs Go, a new podcast for SME owners, property developers, and entrepreneurs. In this special series, we talk to a number of inspiring guests on everything you have and haven't considered about running a business, the challenges you could face, the solutions you might need, and anything else you need to know about investing in yourself. Entrepreneurs Go, brought to you by The Letting People, a landlord's best investment. Visit thelettingpeople.org. Why do you keep looking at yourself in the mirror? The best you're ever going to look was yesterday. And I think that's really true with business. You know, the best time of your life is probably now. My guest today is a local entrepreneur that I've known and admired for over 10 years. He's a restaurateur, a property developer, a landlord, and amazingly, he still finds time to give back to both his local community and to local charities. Welcome to my guest today. It's Andy Sparsis. Hello. Hi, Alan. Nice to be speaking to you. Well, good good of you to uh, to join us. Uh, we're recording this in um, in difficult times for the restaurant trade, which we'll, we'll come on to in a minute uh, with regard to coronavirus. But um, so, Andy, uh, you've got such a wide range of interests. So uh, where to start? Perhaps by asking you to give us an overview of your restaurant business, the uh, Proto Restaurant Group. I've been uh, lucky enough to eat in uh, the Fish Factory and the Fat Greek Taverna and uh, food restaurant uh, many times over the years, so I'm a fan. But uh, for those of people listening that uh, have not had the pleasure, uh, tell us a bit about your restaurant group. Brilliant, yeah. So the, the Proto Restaurant Group was developed really out of a need to join up lots of different restaurants that offered different menus and different um, styles of cuisine. But what we did have as a, a constant was the quality of service, the quality of food, and how with the ethos we had behind having everything that we have on our menu to be completely made by our kitchens. Um, so the proto group was developed to kind of allow customers and patrons to understand that um, we drag all, all of them together. So if you went to the fish factory and you ate a seafood uh, banquet and you enjoyed it, you may want to go to the Fat Greek, a completely different kitchen, completely different type of food, but you would feel more comfortable knowing it was the same company or owners and the same ethos about how we feel you should be treated when you come in so that's kind of the proto brand and why we developed it um as i say i think the most important part of what we do is we're always proud to make sure that anything that's on our menu has been produced by us so from breadcrumbs to pasta to desserts and bakeries and we've got you know so all of that has been developed to make sure that we control what goes in our foods Um, especially things like salt we're able to kind of eliminate a lot of that from our products Um, and and also um, with with the way we train our staff to be the type of people that really are passionate about food Um, so when they come to work with us they feel we're slightly I wouldn't say different there's many people like us in the industry but we try and be as accurate as we can with with our ethos and and train it through this our team so they all have the same feeling so we we end up with a a kind of family of of staff if you like and and if I'm honest, I think the family of staff is probably the biggest part of Proto Restaurant Group and the most powerful asset we've got is is probably our team. And certainly having um, eaten in your restaurants many times, I, I can see that. And I, and I want to come on to that in just a minute. But but first, I want to pick up on another point that you just said there, because um, I, I think, you know, certainly from afar, it looks like you're really good at that whole, you know, hospitality, you know, um, and communicating with people. People do eat across your restaurants, don't they? I mean, that you know, that you have a very loyal following and, and clearly that's something you've worked on and is a, is a, a key part of your success as well. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's um, we do. We have the uh, the birthday um, triage, as we used to call it, where people would come to uh, 
maybe for lunch they'd come in and have um, like lunch at the fish factory and have fish and chips and then they'd go to food in the evening and have something and then pop to the fat greek and have some cocktails so it, we do have customers that see us as part of their their social family as well and they definitely do move around a lot um, and i think that's um, it develops as well a little bit by um, our ethos and thinking is that um, each offer should be different, but yet the same quality is what allows them to understand that they get the same type of meal in the sense of quality and, and care about it, really. Cool. Well, I want to go back to the beginning, if we can, because um, I know you're a Greek Cypriot and I believe that your family came to the UK in the 1970s, which is uh, around the time of the uh, the invasion um, there. Tell me a bit more about your upbringing, if you would, and um, and uh, upbringings and culture and have a have a big impact on 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 on, on business uh, approach to business, let's say. Um, has, has it done so for you? Has that been the case for you? Yeah, I, I, yeah. thanks for asking that, actually, because it is, I mean, my separateness is a huge part of who I am and who I try and get my family to be a part of, if you like. So my family originates from Cyprus, and my entire family came from there. My mother came from um, the, the sort of deep end of Nicosia, which was invaded by the uh, Turkish invasion um, in the sort of late late 70s or mid 70s so they were actually um, refugees and living in the um, southern part of Cyprus um, when they decided that it was a bit difficult for them really so they moved over here Uh, my father was already here actually um, as um, from a few years previously and they met actually in London so uh, but I think like any refugee when when you leave everything behind you tend to really hold on to what you'd had and what was important and, and you kind of probably expand on it more, so it becomes more relevant in everyday life. And I think, you know, having lived in England most of my life, I suppose, I'm also kind of proud to be British as well, if you like, but you don't need to shout about it because it's all around you. But I suppose the separateness of, of my heritage and, and my background is so important because we're protecting it, because we're kind of scared that we're going to lose it because we're not there. So, and I think as well, when you've left, literally, my family left their homes behind, as they were, literally everything they worked for, their farm, their homes, and lost everything. So I think that changes the perception of how you are. And I think as a going forward as a business person, it also changes how you feel. Because growing up in an environment where everything about your heritage is, is built around loss, but then that kind of love that came from that, that protected us, um, also built another layer around me, if you like. So you end up with, I suppose, multiple layers of assets, is the way I look at them, that you probably don't get in um, a more structured life. And I think sometimes those layers have helped me a lot going through business. But yes, I I would say our culture is is a massive part, but I, I see it as such a strength and I draw on it a lot, actually. And I don't want to get into politics, but because um, that isn't what this podcast is about. But, you know, in a previous life, when I was in the fashion business, we had a supplier in northern Cyprus. I guess there's no sign of any time soon of, of some form of unification as far as you can you can see. Well, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the political side of it is, is very messy. I mean, it's, it is officially the last divided city in the European Union. And obviously Cyprus is part of the European Union. So it is a very odd quasar that that hasn't been corrected. Um, and as much as it's a popular holiday resort, and like you say, you fly there, you go there, and people are shocked when they go to the Green Line and they see that Nicosia is still divided by the United Nations. Um, but yet it seems to be a modern Western country. So... Um, it, it is an odd kind of environment, and it's actually the only one, like I say, in the European Union that is, that stays like that. Um, and I think 
the, the difficulty I believe strongly is that I can't see how that can be corrected while people are still alive that have lost members of family. I and mean, there's still um, a big charity that's looking for a thousand young boys that went missing. Um, so it's a thousand young Cypriot boys that were taking on a ship to Turkey and we still haven't found them. So I think it's very difficult when there's so much raw hurt still. Um, I think there's a solution, unfortunately, will come when there's a couple more decades added on and people have forgotten the the painful side of it. Um, and then I think there will be a solution. And hopefully the solution will be that the Turks and the Cypriots can live together with their own republic without the input of Greece and Turkey. And I, for me, that would be my wish. And I think for many of the islanders of Cyprus, they certainly want to work with the Turks that live in Cyprus and not the Turkish government of mainland Turkey. But that's kind of my opinion, and I'm sure there'll be millions of others completely uh, by uh, sort of polar polar opposites to what I'm saying. But, yeah, well, that's hope. That's hope that um, a resolution is found whenever that is. Um, but um, let's talk yeah. about um, something that um, look. We're recording this in a cold November. Um, it's raining outside, um, so I want to talk, not surprisingly, about um, a, a, a farm that you've got, uh, uh, which is an olive farm in Cyprus. So you still go back, family have got an. an an olive farm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're really excited. So basically, the, the our family, the Spartan's name, does go back many, many years, I mean, generations. So um, what's great about Anglicides, which is the village where we live, it was actually, um, and well, it still obviously is, is, it was a Neolithic settlement. So we're talking, you know, many, many, many hundreds of years of sort of culture of that being farmed um and recently we did dig up um, a headstone actually which we believe was neolithic and it's been handed over to the uh cypriot archaeological department so i'm not sure what they'll do with it but they've certainly taken it off us but but what the, the reason i'm giving you that background to it is that the land that we own in cyprus would have been owned hundreds of years ago for farmers and they would have farmed olives so when um, we kind of reacquisitioned our land, if you like, when we got back on um, back to Cyprus, my father many years ago bought up a lot of his historical land that belonged to his grandfather, and he repurchased it. And then basically, it was our dream to re um, reinstall olive groves on that. Um, we did, which I think was a great um, a great move for my dad's was. So he used kind of prehistoric ways on prehistoric but neolithic ways sorry of of farming which is um for example an olive root is very close to the ground so the roots don't go deep um, such as i suppose like an oak tree they're very shallow and they can be sometimes 100 mil um, below the depth of the soil so what that means is that the reason they survive so much is because their roots take a lot of nutrients from the soil so if it doesn't rain a lot they'll still survive and there are, if you look back over history, olive trees are the oldest surviving trees. So Cypriots have got a real love of oil. And there's many, many um, sayings in Greek. And one of them I'll translate for you is that if you've got olive trees, you've got gold, and which they revert to liquid gold. Because many, many years ago, you, you know, we, there was no finances on the island. It was a, you know, a farming community um, at best. And olive oil was one of the biggest trading forums. So um, this is why, really, olive trees were something that was our obvious sort of decision to start planting olive trees. Um, and going back to the reason with the roots and, and the, the, the reason they're so shallow is why we planted almond trees in between every 10 olive trees. And the almond tree root is very, very sweet. And again, this is knowledge that, you know, I wouldn't know about, but was definitely passed down 
from my grandfather to my father and obviously to us now. It's an amazing story and so authentic. I love that bit about your dad researching and, 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 and you know, going back to old techniques. And, and actually that leads me on to talk about your dad because um, I believe your dad very much had the entrepreneurial genes. Um, we all have people that influence us um, through our lives. I'm, I'm guessing dad was one of your influences. Yeah, no, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're completely correct there. And I think... Um, Role models, I think, are just so important, especially now. And I think having people to look up to um, when you're younger and people that you can respect, I think you never forget them. And I think my dad was certainly somebody that, through my life, um, was such a strong figure. He was almost like an unmovable stone in many ways. Um, but that gave me such a confidence. And the fact that I knew he wouldn't budge and he was quite a stubborn person um, and he was the sort of person that would tell you exactly what he thought, regardless of how it made him look or the difficulty it put him in many times, actually, by telling people what he thought of them. <laughs> but actually that um, created a real strength because it gave me the confidence to understand that, that no matter what happens, you've got that pillar of strength. And, and I think it helps as well that he was a, a good person. And that obviously feeds on. He was a very philanthropic person. He genuinely believed in helping other people um, in selflessly, you know, many times. Um, and it was uh, interesting to see other people kept going to my father. And he, he wasn't necessarily a very wealthy man, but people respected him enough to value his um, position, which I think over the recent years we've lost that, where wealthy people are considered uh, honourable and possibly um, full of wealth of knowledge, and, I, and just based on their wealth. And I think that's something that... Um, Cypriots don't value, um, and, and in many cases there are wealthy people that have all these assets, but it, it isn't the only um, parable that you should look at. Um, and so sort of going back to my dad, I think he was, I think he was an entrepreneur by loss almost. So coming from an island where he literally would tell me stories that they would go to, because um, it was obviously an English colony when he was growing up, so they, they, nobody had meat really, but they, the British farmers would have land. They, he told me stories where they'd go and steal the lamb and literally dig a hole in a fire in the farm and bury this thing and come back in the night and take the lamb back and feed themselves. So they were, you know, literally very, very poor. Um, another story told me once, they used to have a wardrobe that was locked, but it would have one loaf of bread. And if they were good, the, his mother would give them the key um, and they'd open it up and take a slice of bread. It was, um, yeah. it's difficult, I think, in a Western society to understand how far back they were in a developed sense. So in, in the, let's say in the 40s and 50s, Cyprus was actually a developing country um, with hardly running water and no economy. So, you know, the, the fact that people lived probably in the equivalent of 100 years ago in England would have been the parables of my father's life. So he wouldn't have had a toilet, for example. So growing up in that environment, then coming to the UK when you're, I think he came when he was a young man to Scotland, um, his entrepreneurial um, life, if you like, started, but only because he probably couldn't believe his luck that how easy it was if you worked really hard to make money. And England does provide everything for you. So, And also I think they have the ability to understand that no one's going to help you. Um, so you have another protection around you where you, you, the buck stops with you no matter what has happened. You take the blame yourself. 
And I think that's kind of the essence of his entrepreneurial talents, if you like. Now, that's the, really interesting, Andy, because, you know, there are so many successful entrepreneurs that have uh, been immigrants or come from immigrants' family. And, 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 and I think you've probably given a very good appraisal there of, of why some of them are so successful. Um, but, um, but you also said something, and I want to pick something else that, uh, up on what you just said there, but you made reference to the Cypriot um, view of, uh, of kind of life and entrepreneurism and, and you made the point that it isn't all just about money. Um, now, you know, most entrepreneurs, all entrepreneurs that I meet have their why. Um, you know, why do they get up early in the morning? Why do they keep pushing themselves? I mean, I know that, well, I, I, you know, having met your lovely wife, Donna, and your two boys, uh, I'm guessing yeah. that, you know, family is that big why for, for you. Uh, am, am I right or...? Uh, absolutely, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, and I think I've touched on this. We may have even chatted about it before, actually. But I, I've often seen myself, um, um, I suppose it's dangerous isn't it, when you start talking about yourself in the second form, <laughs> but um, I, I see myself as the architect of my family. Um, so I think I take everything from that happened to my um, uh, my grandparents and my parents, and they put me to where I am today. And I very much feel a burden, I would, a burden or a challenge maybe, that I should be the architect of the next two generations or three generations of my family. So everything I do is not in a sense selfless, because I think I have a good life and I enjoy my life, but it's very much so um, I really look to how does what I do now affect my grandchildren. And it's building that architecture, if you like, and I, and I just wanted to pick up on that time point because so many entrepreneurs, when they start a business, well, you know, you've done it, I've done it, you know, people listening to this podcast are doing it, you know, it, you are, you can be time poor, particularly in those early days and, and um, getting that balance right of time with work and time with family and, and, you know, even if you're there, not, you know, being present, you know, not being consumed and thinking about your business every minute of the day, which we tend to to do as entrepreneurs you know um have you always achieved that have you got any tips for anybody that's going through that process at the moment because i think probably everyone really gets that it's really important but actually putting it into practice when you've got so many competing competing demands is not as easy as it as it sounds is it no, absolutely not and i think actually coming from um uh, ethnic backgrounds or a, a sort of immigrants background are time poor versus probably someone who's been in the Western world longer is very, very different. Um, so, for example, I think even in Cyprus today, if you don't see your kids until they're 15, um, that isn't a, something that would come up, I don't think. And if someone worked really hard, they don't seem to, I wouldn't say value it, but they value, I suppose, the work they're doing for their family, and that's seen as a value. I think... Um, if you look in the business community in England, we are I was probably more challenged. We're expected to do more with our families or maybe spend more time with our families, which is um, which is the ultimate. Obviously, you want to be with your family as much. You, you'd rather sit with them. I mean, this is where I suppose lockdown is, is, the, is the, the opportunity for everyone to reflect because I think everyone's realised what it's like and how amazing it can be to stay with your family every day uh, and not have to sort of be not there and miss out on all the little things that happen i think i did miss out if i'm honest i missed a lot um and actually recently i just we pulled some old video camera footage out of the boys when they were young and we watched a, a few hours of videos and i there was in none of them not at all not in one video and it was just my wife my family 
and my two boys. And watching it, I got a little bit emotional because I thought, you know, I really wanted to be there. I, it was almost bizarre, but it was like watching my family from behind a, a, a cage door and you couldn't access them, but you could see it. And I thought, God, I missed all that. Um, the, the thing that gets me through now is I kind of, in a way, I'm proud that actually I was working hard while this was going on. I was proud that my family was existing in a good lifestyle, in a healthy lifestyle, and they were in a safe place while I was working hard. So I suppose it is an offset, it is a sacrifice, but it, it's a very personal one to every individual entrepreneur to what they feel they can justify. Um, and I think the only the, the difficulty, is, I suppose, is that at the end of it, is it really worth it? And I think that's the question you have to ask. And that's where being honest with yourself about what you really want out of your future and having goals, real goals of what you want to achieve are important. The the danger, I always think, that if, if your only goals are um, financial, then um, it's very easy to always be living in the future and not living in the current. You know, you, you, you have to get the balance right. And as entrepreneurs, we're obviously ambitious and we're always dreaming about the future. But um, but some of those goals have to be, you know, right now here, you know, stopping, enjoying, getting involved with, with other things, I think, to, to live that fulfilling life. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because I, I, I was thinking about um, the very similar thing and we had a conversation um, with some friends the other day and we, we're very guilty, entrepreneurs especially, of, like you say, and I think you're very much the same, you're just very driven, so you'll always be looking for the, you know, where you can put the business next and how to improve it and I think we're all guilty of that and, and we always kind of imagine that the next year is going to be our best year and next year's going to be the year we really crack it, and next year's the year where it's going to really take off, even though we're doing really well at the time. And I think it's a bit like somebody said to me, it was actually my auntie, a Greek lady, and I'll translate it, but she said, why do you keep, you know, why do you keep looking at yourself in the mirror? You know, and she says to me, the best you're ever going to look was yesterday. And, and I think that's really true with business. You know, a lot of it, even with your family, the best time of your life is probably now. And I, I think you're absolutely right, Alan, in stop and think and look at your life because probably the best time that you're ever going to have with your life and your family and your children is now. And you have to kind of grab it and enjoy it now because you, you can't always wait for tomorrow because it's not always good you know it might not ever work out how well, you want it yeah to. No, that's right. the point is it? it might not even come you know so uh, everyone needs a wise auntie like that i think um now listen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um listen i i i know you also you know i've always admired this and you put back into your community and into charity and and jamie who's been doing some of the research for this podcast um for me gave me a list and um director of town center bids chairman of wording worthing trading group chairman of the brighton greek orthodox church patron of love your hospital patron of we are food uh, you know i've got one question for you andy um do you not sleep <laughs> I've, I, you know, i'm luckily that i've, I've naturally i think you know actually it's catering is very long hours you work long hours so what happens is you get used to starting work at sort of seven eight in the morning and you're very used to working until midnight one o'clock so what happens is obviously as my business grew i didn't work physically as much in the businesses anymore but my working day was still such a long period of time that i i almost found it odd that people never responded really quickly to me in emails i think well why has it taken so long to get back and i think it's the reality is because most people had a much better probably balance of their work where they'd finish at four or five o'clock and go home 
uh, whereas in because of the way I worked was also at home and at work at the same time I'd quite easily at midnight be answering emails seven o'clock at night be typing up um, sort of other minute meetings for or some of the groups that we're involved in um, and again I just involved them in what I do um, the, the an easy way to explain it actually is they it sounds like all those different organizations are separate organizations which they are but they don't take separate work so what happens is for example um, I'm the chairman of the Worthing Theatres Board and this is a trading sub subsidiary which um, basically runs the three Worthing Theatre sites now really a lot of the work I do there is already crossed over with the work that I do on the TCI and a lot of the work I do on the TCI is crossed over on the board that we are for Times of Worthing the we are food pioneers will it will naturally migrate over to the work we do there because a lot of the discussions we have can be around charities and we automatically say, well, why don't we work with this charity? Um, so what happens is they all kind of amalgamate into one help and what happens is almost sit like a figure that hovers over all the charities and my job, if anything, is to bring everyone together because we've all got the same goals. Yeah. Now, I want to, I want to pick up on a point you talked about right at the beginning now in my vast experience of restaurants um, and that is working at the happy eater for eight months when i was at college andy but um uh, washing dishes and um, and prepping uh, veg um i know it's actually you know it's a hard gig it, it's 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 hard work um it's long hours and you mentioned about the team earlier on and and i really have so seen this when i've um, interacted at the restaurant with your team they are as passionate as you you know what is it that you do to create Create that. I mean, you did talk earlier on about you know them almost feeling part of the family, but that's easy to say and hard to do. You know, uh, particularly when the pressures of the business are uh, are, are so all-consuming on everybody. But um, you know, how do you how do you create that um, that that sense of team spirit and loyalty? So, what I think one of the, the earlier things we did was we looked at the industry as a whole, if you like, and working in it and understanding it. Um, what people will know, um, and as every entrepreneur will understand their industry with a, an accuracy that is very difficult to explain to other people. But the restaurant industry was often not considered to be a professional industry. But ironically, people in the industry were, work, were earning as much as people in professional industries. So, if you look at the irony where you're having a state agent that will come in, just a you know, which is a brilliant job. The guy works really hard. He's got his flashy suit. Comes into the restaurant. And he's maybe on a just started off on a, a, a minimal wage of I don't know what it would be. Let's say he's on twenty thousand pound a year. You've got a waiter who's extremely qualified, is really working really hard. He's probably earning double, but the perception would be that um, this is a, a kind of badly paid job, and because you're wearing a suit and you're in a more office environment, um, or you know that would act or a blue collar environment, if you like, you'd actually be a higher status, and the status ethos if you like of the restaurant industry has always been not considered to be very professional or difficult um, so what we did early on was we looked at that and thought well the only way really to change that perception is if we actually value our employees as professionals and the way to do that is to treat them as professionals so something we did I think even 17 years ago we started with uh, our own college in a sense where every year we insisted that we educated our teams in 
the professional side of restauranteering, if you like. So we would make sure they did their health and hygiene courses as standard, but we would back on with that with our own teachers, bring them in and hold all sorts of classes um, around uh, language, which was really important for us, safety. We used to get St. John's ambulances and they would do first aid training. We would do a lot of training on cuisine, the science behind food safety. So what would happen was they would be getting diplomas um, on these items, but also we would get as many as we could to do in-house college courses um, in business, management, chefing, cooking, uh, whatever we could get them to do. And some of them were only three-month courses, some were five-month courses. But what that did was it added value back to staff by saying to them, guys, we're, we're professional, we're important, we matter. And what we do is really important. So when you come into a restaurant as a customer, not only do we know exactly how the food is cooked, we understand the science behind it. If you were to collapse, we could probably help you because we're first aid trained. If, for example, there was a, a safety aspect in the restaurant, we also can help you with that. And we have a, a, that understanding which makes us more professional. So by treating the staff like professionals, they felt like professionals and actually have become professionals, which hires the standard of, of what we do. Um, and accompanying with that, what we did was we then only hired people in the profession, if you like. So what's very depictive is that most businesses, especially in the, in the catering area, will have part-timers, which are highly valuable and skilled members of the team, and you do need them. But what happens as well is you have people that pop in and out of catering and go, well, I'll do it for a year, I'm on my gap year, I'll do it while I'm at university, and that's great. But your core value people must be restaurant people. They must be 100% in that business as their career. So what we did was, in a lot of restaurants, there is no career, there's no forward planning. So you could get a job in a restaurant and, you know, like you say, you're a happy eater. I'm sure, you know, nobody came up to you and said, look, I know you're washing up now, but where do you see yourselves here in five years? And you would have probably laughed them out the door. You know, so I think the reality is that what we did was we told our teams that stay with us, we'll educate you, but we will get you to a management position. We will get you to a career point where you can buy a house, look after your family, and have a secure job in an industry that doesn't usually offer that. Pro to restaurant group, actually, we've got 60% of our people that have been with us for 15 years now. Wow, and that's amazing. That longevity is is testament not really to the fact that you know we're nice to our staff, but it, what it is is we've built a professional environment around them where they actually can carry on with their life. And I think that's kind of a message that I would give out, and I've proven it over 20 years, is that your team is the most important, but you need to invest in them not just by saying that you do, but you actually have to have a process or a vision, if you like, of how you see this team. Yeah. Now, I don't, you know, we're, we're recording this in, in the middle of a pandemic and I don't want to dwell too much on it because it is a, you know, as hard as it is right now, it's a moment in time and someone listening to the, this podcast in a year's time, hopefully by then it will be um, in the history books and uh, and we would have all moved on. But, but you know, you are working and running a business in one of the hardest hit industries and sectors Um down to uh, the pandemic coronavirus so so you know how's it been what you know how have you managed to you know survive what changes have you have you adapted um just give us a little overview of i guess you know from from march onwards sure so i mean i think march was um we we're all very um naive in march weren't we and i think we'd all look back and laugh at our thought processes in march where we all thought we'd be out of it by summer and it'd be back to normal um and i think 
going back, looking at what we did was um, we immediately started uh, investing in um, our team again. So we got a lot of our staff straight away onto a disease control course, which was online, um, but it was specifically set up for COVID control and disease control. And I think six of our guys did these courses, including myself. Um, we then built a package around keeping the restaurant safe. So we bought a fogging machine. We developed a cleaning system. We developed our own way of controlling staff in and out with temperatures and all these things. And I think we did that really early. Um, and we started publicizing that on social media. And in a sense, what we were trying to do was create a real trust around customers that the proto group, so if you come into Fish Batch, if you come into Fat Greek, we've got your back. We understand what's going on. We know how scared people are. So we invested a lot, I think, in, in the earlier point, whereas I think we were, we were buying PPE straight off the back of it. And I'm not sure what made us do that. I just think I felt at the time. Um, but again, I think it was... <laughs> It wasn't because I thought we'd definitely need them. I just didn't want to end up paying too much for them. So I thought I'd just better buy some. And if not, we could sell them back. So we did buy a lot of PPE early on, which ironically, I still have PPE now that I bought in March for nothing. We still got that. Those things helped us a lot. Um, I think um, mistakes we made, if I'm honest, was we were naive to how long this would take to fix. So we were all a bit childish in a sense, where we thought it would be a couple of months, and we thought, oh, it would be all right. We'll get and we didn't plan long enough. And I think in, in any business scenario, I think we're all guilty of doing that, is we never really, we, we do say we'll take worst case scenario, but I think coronavirus, if anything, has changed everybody's worst case scenario because we all lived with it, with that, well, we all know it could happen, but we all as entrepreneurs believed it never would. And whatever this would thing is, it now has happened. And I think it's kind of taught us all a lesson to kind of replan properly and actually when other people say, but this could happen, you know, we really do look into it. So that's something I think we made a mistake on. We should have, our worst case scenario was too optimistic, put it that way. I think that's something I won't do anymore. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a good point in relation to things like debt as well, isn't it? You know, you really do need to uh, have a firm, uh, you know, grasp on your costs and not over borrow because you know, uh, the, you know, a lot of the surviving that rainy day is 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 about having cash in in the business in order to do so. Of course, there's there's help, uh, but that help alone won't get you through periods like this, will it? And um, and I think that's obviously where some businesses have have, have come a cropper, really. Yeah, do you know, and it's a really, it's a, in fact, I think you've got the perfect point there. But I think, and, and I've, I've, we've been using this term, I've been using it for about four months now, and what I'm saying is, so all our staff and all our suppliers, creditors, I'm running the business from my top pocket. And the reason I say that is because when I was growing up, my dad used to have a building company, and he used to have, uh, always wear a shirt, um, a suit shirt with tractors, which is another story for another time. But um, <laughs> but this is his general building attire. But his top pocket would always be full of all his bills and a couple of pens. And, and he'd have everything in his top pocket. And he literally ran the whole business out of his top pocket, which at the time I thought was just idiotic. I remember saying to him, this is just ridiculous. You can't operate like this. Ironically, what I've done now is reverted my business back in a, in a it's more of a, a homage to the top pocket clearly we don't do that but what we do now is we have a zero creditor policy so what we've done recently is we found all our creditors and suppliers and we said to them if you are not paid within 14 days of an invoice or delivery 
we will not honour that payment. So you have to get paid immediately. So what we've done is we've dissolved any creditors, any debtors, and made sure that we don't owe any money at any point longer than 12 to 14 days. And you're absolutely right about debt, because what we've realised is the only way we'll get through is with no debt. Yeah. Because what we've learned is when you've got debt and you need it and you need help, no one will give you money. Banks are not going to give you money. And and I think this is where you're right about that honesty, that we have to understand that, yes, we can all take on debt. And actually, I would say from, from, two, I don't know, from 2000 up to 2010, acquiring large amounts of money was ridiculously easy and probably so easy that um, we all became very relaxed about the large amount of borrowing. And we all got used to owing hundreds of thousands of pounds and actually no means to pay it back all at once and not thinking that was a problem. And I think we've just, the ones that are going to get through it, and I have to say it, are the ones that have learned their lesson and thought debt is actually not something that you can carry without the means to pay it off. And yes, you can take chances and, and take gambling on it and you can hope that things are going to be uh, getting us through. But I think you're right. It's now, it needs a proper plan and an honest description of your business to yourself and um, I'm sorry to say it, but sometimes you have to listen to the bankers because <laughs> when they don't want to give you money, there's a reason. Yeah, yeah, and and, and actually, debt leads on to my next uh, well, what was going to be my next question, which was really about private equity. So bear with me. I mean, when I've looked at your businesses from afar, I've seen the obvious, you know, uh, decor. I've seen the great food. I've seen the amazing service, but I've also seen very strong brands that almost, you know. Let, would lend themselves to national brands that you know the the fish factory the food all those kind of brands always seem to be you know locally orientated but big brands you know and um and i wondered did you ever consider rolling them out because there's lots of brands that have rolled out with the help of private equity and um did you ever consider taking those brands to 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 the next level in with regards to expansion yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, and I think one that we've been asked uh, a few times. And, of course, we have been approached many, many times. I think as early back as 10 years ago, somebody, quite a big one, I won't say the name, but they came to us about the fish factory, and they wanted to roll it out. Um, as far as up to a few months ago, we've been working with Legal in General about the possibility of um, the Fat Greek brand being in a, in a, a large number of their properties. Um, so we always look at it. And, and it's always on the table. And, and I think you're right. The branding is strong because I think we, we get it right and we, we work on that particular brand. I think what stopped us from expanding them beyond our property company, if you like, is the goes back to my earlier uh, point about being the architect of my family and the creation of wealth. And as I see it, it's very easy to open up leasehold properties very cheap as well, especially when people are offering you the money to do it. It was very easy to open up 10 factories and 15 fish factories. Um, I could probably get it funded without any of my own finances going into it. How would that help my wealth is the question I asked to myself. Is in would it would it pay my freeholds off quicker? Maybe, maybe not. But what my plan has always been is to have a solid stance on every business we own. So, for example, the restaurants we own are because we own the freeholds and the block of flat that's on top of them. But um, So that kind of each development is a strong foothold um, and by far outweighs the value of many leasehold restaurants. Um, 
also, for example, taken into account at the moment, leasehold restaurants are, in a sense, on resale, have now become worthless. So um, there is, for example, the idea of a premium on a restaurant has since disappeared. I mean, you know, I think in the early uh, 2000s, you could sell restaurants and actually have a premium. That premium doesn't exist anymore unless it's a very good business. And even then, I think it's difficult to get a premium. So I think our business model has always been not ego because yes you know it's, I'd, I'd love nothing more than to have you know 20 fat greeks all around the uk um but financially would it actually improve any quicker my plan or would it make me any more wealthy um or would it just massage my ego you well know? certainly um, looking at case studies at the moment andy particularly through this coronavirus you know then uh, you know there is there are certainly plenty of those private equity backed restaurant groups that are, are in real trouble and uh, and refinancing and, and 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 i guess um one thing that always stuck in my mind about uh, the mcdonald's brand was that actually you know their real wealth is in property and um and uh, you know the sites that, that that they have and and that leads me on to property because um like uh, like me you um have um, had a track record of, of property developing, and um, you know, t- tell us tell us the kind of products you you've done. You, you you've obviously they've correlated with your restaurant business by the sounds of it. Yeah, so what we we like to um, the property I like to do is um, value added property. So what I enjoy is mixed commercial um, and residential. But what we like to do is create space from obscure buildings. Or buildings that are maybe a bit knackered. So, for example, when I look on the, you know, or, or, or properties get sent to us, or when we look on the the, uh, the web searches for properties, the ones that are completely destroyed actually really excite me. I get a real buzz about them. I really enjoy looking at those, and I really enjoy imagining what they can be. Um, I know there's probably, from a profit point of view, there are a lot of developers that do it much better than me, and they drop buildings, redevelop them. Um, that side of it's never interested me. I mean, I, I do enjoy taking buildings and finding ways of using that space in possible ways where they didn't. I do like reinstituting some of the architecture. Um, so, for example, if we look at Portland Road, um, that was actually a very old building. Um, it was fairly new. I think it was about 30 years old. So we bought the building um, and, and the next door building, actually, and we joined them together to create a restaurant. But upstairs, we actually took the whole roof off and added another floor. But when we built the second floor, we did it out of steel, but we did it in a kind of more of a pitch roof system. So we created old and style loft apartments within that, uh, whereas it would have probably been cheaper just to do a, a, a simpler structure. But again, what excited me was being able to develop that space and make those spaces look in the way they did. Um, and I think how that's, I suppose, how that's fed back financially was at the time it didn't seem like a good decision, but actually looking at it five years on from that development, the six flats that have been in there, only one of them has had to be re-rented. And I've had them at a very good revenue because of the quality of the development. And and, and, and let's talk a bit more about property in general, because, you know, we know property cyclical. We're always trying to pre-guess where it's going next if you're developing, particularly if you're going to turn, maybe not so important if you're going to hold. But, I mean, where do you, sitting here now in November 2020, you know, where do you see property going? Are you still going to be investing in the next, you know, two, three, four years in, in property development? Short answer, absolutely. Um, to just explore on that a little bit more is um, 
again, I know I keep quoting um, old Greek people, but they, they do resonate in my head, these old voices bounce around, but it was my dad. This is auntie again, is it? Is this auntie again? Yeah, no, no, yeah, it was my old <laughs> This was my dad. And he said to me, um, when he was buying land in Cyprus, um, he bought a small plot, which seemed just, it was the oddest plot of land to buy. And it was next to a house that didn't belong to him. And it was almost like their garden. I said to him, why would you buy that? And he said to me, because they don't make any more land. And it just always stuck in my head. Was yeah. that, you know, his vision was that, you know, property, in a sense, is always going to be, um, in the long term, is always going to be an asset that you will always make money on. And, and I think this is the reality. If you want to make a quick buck, unless you're very, very clever, property is probably not the best one to do. Um, I would say if you want to do it, you need to know what you're doing be honest about your numbers and have a good team behind you and understand it. I know you do very well um, out of that, but then you really understand it, Alan. But I think there's a lot of people that don't and they see people like yourselves develop stuff and turn it around and they think, oh, we can do that. It is really difficult. Long-term is what the, sorry, the long-term attitude is how I look at property. So we don't sell, we buy and we hold on and we try and make sure every property that we invest in can cover itself. And then if there is any value in it, we'll take that out uh, in borrowing and add it to the next property and so on and so on. But what we try and do is make sure that any property we buy, we add value. That that value is then realized in a loan and taken off to invest in something else. And then what's left should easily cover the loan. And what I try and do is keep my loan to value at under 20% at all times. It does spike when we're doing the development, obviously, but then if we're going to you know, start renting out, it drops back down to 20%. Yeah, yeah. And that compounding of, uh, of, of profit year on year is, is, is really, you know, what sets uh, property, um, you know, out from from certain other sectors, I think. And, and, and I think, you know, you're so right. I mean, you know, you and I have gone similar uh, routes with regard to um, regenerating existing properties rather than building from scratch. And, and, and that so much is about knowledge and the right team, because it's a pretty risky job in some ways to try and get right at the at the at the start from a costing point of view isn't it because there's so many unknowns there absolutely and i think this is again is that as entrepreneurs we always you know but everyone's done it you've all been at the auctions and you think well you do a quick calculation in your head about how much that's going to take to fix that building and you know you from what you've done before um and it's the same it's almost like the covid test if you like we need to add six more months onto whatever the government says we're going to be sorted same when we do property development whatever numbers we come up with we just have to be honest with ourselves and go stick another £30,000 on that because it's probably going to be what it will be. And then even then we say, well, we don't make any money. Then actually you have to be honest with yourself and say, you're not going to make any money out of it. So walk away. But so often we get tempted and we think we will save that money. And as you say, it, it can only take a structural calculation um, on a bit of steel that it all of a sudden needs a lot more work or and there's a wall that doesn't work properly or, uh, well, there's millions of variables, isn't there? I'm sure you've yeah. seen them as well. And one of those will take you out. And actually those losses, when you're doing property, one or two can put you out of the game. 
very yeah. easily. Yeah, and I mean, certainly, I'm sure it's the case for you, but, you know, the amount you need to fill in the funnel to do the number crunching and the amount you have to, you know, uh, do a desk calculation on and discount and walk away from because the margin's not there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going for an English auntie here um, uh, quote, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, we can all be busy fools, can't we? And uh, and I think that's, never, yeah. you know, that's really true in property and um, you just have to take your time and make sure you, you, you do your research. I wanted to go on to being a landlord because you do keep your properties. You are a landlord. Um, you know, I'm a landlord. I also own a, a letting agency. So I think I'm qualified in saying that, um, you know, over the last five years, it's you know, the government have, um, you know, purposely made the life of a landlord much, much tougher. And, and in my opinion, I don't want to get political, but on some occasions they've used a sledgehammer to uh, to, 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 to crack a nut. But, um, you know, am I being fair there? Is that your experience? I mean, um, you know, uh, things have I changed. Yeah, no, I think you are. And it is right. I mean, it is. It, it, they've changed the landscape. And, and I think we understand why. I mean, there's not any of us. I mean, I think, you know, I, I know... Um, the work you do, and I know you run a very, very solid and fair and accurate and provide a brilliant service. And But we all know, unfortunately, a couple of guys that we've bumped into at the auctions and here and there, and we know they're awful. We know what they do is terrible, and we try and stay away from them. But I think you're right, is that the government's approach to deal with them hasn't been effective in actually improving the industries. I think what's happened is to try and make sure they don't uh, take advantage of renters uh, especially the ones that, unfortunately, the ones that have the less income and actually the most vulnerable that were getting affected by these certain types of people, they haven't, I think, invested enough money, if I'm honest, into trying to make sure they were dealt with and put laws in that prevented them from operating in the way they are. They have done this sledgehammer, as you say, right across the top. Um, and, what, and actually, ironically, what it's done from the, the, the safer end of the market where you've got landlords and agents that really look after their tenants, all it's done actually is diminish the service that they're able to give because there's less money in it. So, you know, that actually then just makes it harder to be able to look after tenants. So it's, um, it, it hasn't worked. And I think as well, animosity has started to build. Some of the agents that we've dealt with, especially management agents, um, have struggled to be able to deliver that. Um, again, you know, I think it does depend on the relationship between a landlord and a tenant and how that's run. Um, we, we've always tried to be as personal as we can. So what that means is we try and cut the amounts of phone calls they have to do to get to the person that makes a decision. So there, there's a lot of times where, you know, I'll just take the calls myself rather than making them talk to the office and then the office then talks to someone else. Because that, that can create a lot of stress for tenants. Um, sometimes it backfires because I think, you know, when you've got tenants that have got your direct mobile as a landlord, um, that can be that can also have its challenges. And you have to be careful to understand that the relationship has to be at a certain level um, and a certain distance has to be there just for your own peace of mind as well, really, and just for the professionalism. So, yeah, I think it's, um, I think changes need to happen in the landlord and tenant relationship. I think the, the bullish way the government have gone about it, I think you're absolutely right, hasn't improved relationships at all. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I wanted to talk, I mean, entrepreneurs from afar, people often perceive them as being big risk takers. Um, w would you describe yourself as a, a big risk taker? I mean, what are the kind of processes that you go through when assessing risk for, for you and your, your various different businesses? Um, so, yeah, I mean, so 
like you say, they do. And I, I, so I won't gamble, for example. You know, I don't go to casinos or play cards or anything like that. So, and I've always said to people, I gamble enough every time I open my front door. Again, I think that was for my auntie, that one. But uh, <laughs> it's true. You know, any business you open is a massive gamble because there's so many variables that you just can't. I mean, you know, the, the current situation is one perfect one. I mean, there, there is so many variables in any business you look at. But the only way I think to offset those variables is to be as prestigious as you can. And that means 100% planning. And I think this is it. You can't take anything. You need to do your numbers. You have to do your homework. You have to really understand your business. And I think people don't research enough. When they look at opening a business, they don't really... And what it scares me, actually, when people go into business, they come and see me and they tell me their idea. And the amount of times, when you've heard this, Alan, where people go, oh, I'll my best mate's a chef. He's just been made redundant. And I've got some money from um, my dad's um, inheritance. So I've got 100K. So we're going to go and open a restaurant. This, to me, is he'd be better off putting that money on black or red at the casino, really, to be honest with you. It's, it's because there's no planning. There's no ethos. There's no outlook. And there's no the, – the idea of the business, if you like, hasn't got an ethos. And I think you have to have your ethos and why it's so different to anything else on the market, then you need to prove to yourself and your peers that that financially works. And then you need to, I think, what I always do is I stick on at least a 20% uh, margin on that, which just basically says even if we did do really well, I'm going to still take that 20%. So no matter what happened, we still had a massive margin of error. Uh, and that's on final after... Um, you know, sort of after tax, if you like, or your, your uh, you know, your gross numbers, if you like. But, um, and, and I think we would probably, yeah, so from a gambling, yes, you take a gamble. I think you take a massive gamble for any business, but you do it from a really strong foothold. Okay, no, good, good, good advice. And, I mean, some people that are listening to this podcast will be, um, you know, aspiring to be entrepreneurs. I was in corporate life for many years of wanting to be an entrepreneur, but never necessarily having the confidence to uh, to step away from the, from the day job. So for those people that are uh, at the start of their entrepreneurial uh, journey, what kind of three tips would you give a would-be entrepreneur, um, Andy? The first tip I would give is you'll need to be ridiculously bullish in what you believe is the right thing to do everybody else around you is telling you you're crazy that is a ridiculous idea doesn't make any sense at all and if i'm honest i've had some of those they've been right <laughs> i should have listened to them but i'd say more than not i've been right and i think if i had listened to them i wouldn't have been where i am today so you need to have an arrogance about you, and it's a funny word to use, but you do need that arrogance. When everyone else around you is telling you you're absolutely insane, you need to have that belief in what you're doing is so right, that needs to be where you're at. If you've got any question in what you're doing isn't going to work, do not become an entrepreneur. If you cannot battle people telling you every day, pack it in, give up, and do something else, do not become an entrepreneur. Secondly, I suppose, um, I think you need to know why you're doing it and, and if it's not because you love it um, and you have a real passion about it I think it's going to be really difficult I don't think it means that you won't become an entrepreneur but it's just going to be you're just going the hard way up the mountain if you see what I mean um, if it's something you love doing and you can devote because in all fairness you know this Alan I know you work incredibly hard and you work every hour there is 
Um, but, but that's the reality. I don't know, coming from a corporate job where you can go home at five o'clock and actually it's not on your mind. You just watch TV and do other things. And when you're on holiday, you wouldn't even dream of checking an email or picking your phone because you're on holiday. That will all change. When you're an entrepreneur, actually the first thing you, well, actually you'll wake up in the middle of the night, but when you do wake up in the morning <laughs> thinking about it, you will think about your business before anything else. And when you're on holiday, you will think about it all the time. When your family is uh, screaming at you to come and run in the sea and go and get an ice cream, in the back of your mind, every second will be the deal, what you're waiting for, was it a delivery, has this turned up, how's the business doing? Oh, I'm so glad, so you're gl- so glad you're saying that, Andy. That just sounds like my holidays, unbelievable. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it's, it's well, so true. And it is, and I think people sometimes, they can't cope with it or they're not ready for that. But it, it does not go away. And it's almost something that will live with you until you stop that business. But um, you, you, as a, as a, and I, I think we touched about this a, a while ago when we had a chat, was um, about business maturity. And I find it that um, it, there's, there's the age of a person and there's an age of their business maturity. So, you know, I know people in their 80s that have just maybe started businesses or never really um, got into their business too much. But the way they've dealt with it has never been very mature and they've struggled and it's been hard for them whereas in you know there's people that i know that have sort of fought for it all their lives and they're very well equipped at handling businesses and and then sort of if you like being a fighter in it and, and their maturity will be much higher so uh, i think that's kind of um sometimes a good measure of um the business. It doesn't mean that they're more successful or not i mean i think they're, they're completely separate things but there's people i mean like yourself Alan, we've we've had chats many times before where we can dive off into different areas of business and we've got a good understanding of it. Um, that isn't always the case. Um, so, you know, it's, um, uh, and then I'll tell you the last point I would have is you need to have a peer, a role model or somebody that you look up to so much that you aspire to be, it could be as wealthy as them. I don't, wouldn't advise that, but to be aspire the person they are, the type of, person that people react to like them uh, or to emulate what they've done or what they've achieved and I think that is really important as well because if you've got no one to uh, challenge yourself against or no one to hold yourself up against um, like any race you do you'll never be as successful because you need pushing everyone does so it's important to challenge yourself and unfortunately it's really hard to challenge yourself unless you look around you and challenge yourself with your peers around you. So it is important. I mean, we all do it in business. We all, we all sort of like, sort of go, oh, they're doing great, aren't they? Oh, well done. And then as soon as you shut the door, you're thinking, bloody get, how did he get away? You know, and that's what we do as business people, you know. But really, they, these are the people we want to do well because they're the ones that are going to challenge us to fight harder. Absolutely. Well, there's so much, so many wise words there, and I think I agree with everything you've just said. Look, um, we've come to pretty much the end of it. I've took up a lot of your time. I, uh, I, I think that um, you need to give me the telephone number of your auntie so I can get her on the podcast uh, going forward. But, but on a serious note, Andy, you know, I've known you for ten years, um, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you a lot more and and, and talking to you uh, in this podcast. Uh, I wish you well post coronavirus. I know your business will go on from uh, success to success success um and um thank you so much for your time 
Thanks for listening to Entrepreneurs Go. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, then please subscribe and do tell a friend. If you can spare us a few minutes, we'd really appreciate you rating the podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, The Letting People. They're offering all Entrepreneur Go listeners three months free when they rent their property via them. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us next time around. Entrepreneurs Go, brought to you by The Letting People, a landlord's best investment. Visit thelettingpeople.org.